My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Raj Sisodia. Last time I had Raj on the Wonder Dome, we talked about his fantastic and important book, The Healing Organization. And today we dive deep into his latest book, Awaken. If you heard our last conversation, you remember that Raj shared this wisdom he received from women in his life, from elders in his life, from people around him who said, Raj, if you're going to write a book about healing, and keep in mind, this is a book, Raj has been writing books since 2007, when he published uh, the the groundbreaking piece, Firms of Endearment, How World-Class Companies Profit from Passion and Purpose. So Raj has, has been on a mission to bring caring and humanity and healing to business since the publication of that book. He also co-wrote the New York Times bestseller, Conscious Capitalism, um, with John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Everybody Matters. So he's been spending a lot of time thinking and feeling and pointing in the direction of how we help groups of people in the form of businesses make a difference in the world and help people live into their potential. So now he embarks on this journey to write the book, The Healing Organization, and the wisdom he receives is, hey, listen, if you're going to do this, you also have to heal yourself. What do you mean heal myself? I look at all I'm doing. This is great. Mm -mm. You're going to have to go deeper. And his latest book, Awaken, is a, a product of that journey. It's the most intimate, personal book he's ever written, and it was really a delight to speak with him and hear a bit more about his own journey when he has spent so much time documenting and and extracting first principles from other people's successful journeys of healing and wholeness, and when he spent so long making a case, a really potent and powerful case for business and its potential to be a force for good rather than a force of consumption and greed. So, it was, so to take that into his own life, to take the question of healing, how organizations can be healing, but now how do I as an individual heal? And by the way, the, the word healing comes from the Indo-European root word kelo, which translates literally to whole. And the Indo-European language is inclusive of Spanish, English, Hindu, Urdu, Bengali, Portuguese, Russian, Punjabi, French, German, a lot of others. So these kind of cultures that we think of as distinct actually all have their roots in this sort of proto-language. 
uh, or proto-languages that all come from a similar source or the same source. And the word healing means whole. And if we look at that in other languages, uh, like Old English, hail, or Norse, hill, or uh, helge, or halig, these words all point to things that mean holy, whole, sacred, unbroken. Healing is an incredibly fundamental concept to what it means to be alive. And we often think of it now these days purely as physical health. And that is certainly a part of the picture because we are our bodies. But our bodies also carry in it our psyche, our psychology, the soul, if you want to use that word. And Awaken is a book about the soul. It's a book about what it means to become whole, to bring in the parts of your life that you've ignored or you're afraid of or that have caused you pain and to look at them and to meet them. And I really meet like I've been doing this work as a coach and a practitioner. I've studied internal family systems. And I have to tell you, I've done this work for myself. I'm not speaking metaphorically. <laughs> like if you wanted to right now, you could go and meet your fear. And it would have something to tell you. And it would have a good reason for being afraid even if that reason was outdated, even if that reason was sourced from a time in your life when you couldn't take care of yourself and it made sense to be afraid of the big people around you. So what does it mean to become whole? And in particular, uh, this is not the whole scope of the book, but a big part of Raj's book, the themes that kind of come out naturally are themes of, of masculinity, of uh, parenting, which are really connected to me as a, uh, as a man and as a parent, like what does it mean to be healthy and whole in that context? So that's a thread that kind of moves its way through the whole book. I highly recommend you read it. I really hope that you get something from listening to this conversation as you think about what it is for you to awaken, to live with more love, with more simplicity, with more trust, with more truth in your own life. And if you can begin there, then you might leave behind a legacy of love and healing for those who come. And I really feel that is true for Raj. And I feel really grateful that I got to spend that time with him in this conversation. So let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Raj has for us. Hey, Raj. Welcome back to the Wonder Dome. Thank you, Andy. Good to be back with you. It's time. Time flies. It's been a it couple of really, years. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's, you know, I started this podcast right shortly after the enforced lockdowns of the pandemic in 2020. And mm -hmm. looking back on it now, it was a kind of coping response to the intense uncertainty in, in March of 2020 when that came on and, and a lot of people's consciousness in America it was just a, un, a complete unknown. But it was, it turned out to be not only a, a really great coping response, but a wonderful sort of pathway through these continually intense and uncertain years that we're, that we're in as, as we look, as we sort of stare down the face of ecological crisis and war and mass human movement around the globe and, just as like, 
I feel really, really grateful that I have this space where I can land and and share with folks like you who have been dedicating your life in your own way to trying to help people live more consciously and more generously and more authentically. So thanks for coming back in. Yeah, no, it's, I feel it the same way you do. There's a lot of turmoil in the world and there's some ways in which feels like things are moving backwards in the reverse direction than we have been on. But I'm hoping and believing it's a temporary you know, set back, that we will get back on the path. Mm, yeah, me too. When we spoke last, it was the anchor of our conversation was your book, The Healing Organization. And and maybe I just want to kind of say a word or two, that, or two about that before we dive into your latest book, Awaken. Um, that, you know, you've, you've written a number of books. I can't even remember the total volume, but, but quite a lot, exploring a lot of different facets of leadership and identity and how organizations, uh, businesses can, can actually be forces for good in the world. But the healing organization to me felt like a step change. It was, okay, this is not just about uh, having a strong mission. This is about honoring that the, the world is in pain, that people are in pain, and that organizations could become places where people can actualize, can heal and grow and, and not be re-traumatized by all of the patterns uh, that that have sort of shaped capitalism over the past number of years. And I remember in that conversation, you sort of alluding to part of your journey to writing that was that you had some, some wise people in your life who said, Raj, if you're going to write about healing, you've got to do some healing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The seeds of this book were planted while I was about to start writing the healing organization because exactly that. And these were four women actually who said some version of the same thing mm. as you just, you know, you're writing a book about healing. What about your own healing? And my initial response was to say, well, I don't have time for that. I've got a book deadline. <laughs> I have to get it done by October 5th or whatever the deadline was. So I had the entire summer, four or five months blocked out for writing retreats. And I said, besides, you know, I think I'm okay, you know? And they said, no, first of all, book deadlines are flexible. And secondly, you definitely need healing. All of us do. And we know a little bit about your story. You definitely need to do that and, and devote time to that, you know? I was in such a frantic pace of life. I was running from project to project. I was traveling. I don't know. I'm even afraid to count the proportion of days I was traveling. Wow. Probably 63%. And with a sense of almost panicked urgency about everything, you know, and never really taking time to step back and be with myself. And I think now in hindsight, I know I'm kind of running from my own pain mm. and not wanting to slow down and examine mm. because one of the hardest things we can do is to look at our own uh, selves and look, in, look inward and see what needs to be healed because that awakens or, or uh, you know, brings back a lot of the pain associated with some mm. of that. So, mm. so yeah, it was something I was running away from. I was traveling a lot and in a way running away from my own life too. And I was so singularly focused on, on conscious capitalism, on, on writing and on speaking uh, out in the world that I was neglecting other aspects of my own well-being, uh, physical, mental, emotional, psychological 
I was purely focused on the spiritual in, in the sense of following my, my purpose and my calling. And so it was a real wake-up call. It was also the year I turned 60. And that's kind of a big milestone. It kind of creeps up on you and say, wow, suddenly 60, you know. <laughs> uh, and it is a, uh, it is a, uh, it's a significant moment because it's kind of the end of the second act, as some people put it, and it's the beginning of your last act. Um, and a time for making sense and looking back and consolidating what you've learned and and figuring out how to use that for the future, but also sharing what you've learned because 60 years of lived experience, you know, there's a lot of challenging things that happen and a lot of painful lessons that are learned. And if other people can benefit, including my own children, if they can benefit from some of those lessons and, you know, that, that makes it it's like finding meaning in your suffering, right? As Viktor Frankl talked about. Mm. And I think that is something we humans are capable of. Learning from the experiences of others. Mm. You know, everybody can learn from their own experience. That's a given. But but we are also able to learn from the experiences of others. And that's, I think, part of what this book is trying to do. Mm. Mm. When When those women started to kind of challenge you a bit, and you said, no, I'm fine... What, when did you stop saying, no, I'm fine? Like, what was, what helped you go, I need to listen to this wisdom? Yeah, well, I think some of them had known me for a number of years and they, they actually talked about some of the things that they were aware of mm. in my journey, you know, including where I come from, the community that I'm part of from India, in India, you know, there's a lot of trauma in there, uh, uh, my own experiences with my father, you know, some of them knew about that. So, you know, there were things that I had kind of brushed under the carpet and said, well, I think we all do this to a degree, which is to minimize our own uh, trauma and, and wounds because they pale in comparison to some others. I mean, if you go looking, you'll always find people with, yeah. with way more, right? And so we say some version of, well, I didn't get sent to Afghanistan or Iraq or, you know, first responder or you know I didn't I haven't dealt with that level of trauma and therefore I have no right to really complain about or whine about my own mm -hmm. you know experience mm -hmm. and so I think we we minimize them now you know the fact that other people have more trauma doesn't make your trauma insignificant and it's in you it's whether you acknowledge it or not it's in you you know as, as they say the body keeps the score it's all embedded and if we just keep denying it or minimizing it, then there's no opportunity for healing it. And if there's no healing, then you really can never get to the other side. You're, you're, you're living in a very reactive state without really even understanding mm -hmm. your own thought patterns and your own behaviors because they're being triggered. You're constantly being triggered. So you're not able to be responsive to things. You're, you're basically reacting to things. So that's the opposite of being conscious, right? To be conscious means to be choosing your response. But when you don't do this kind of work, I think you you end up being in that space of stimulus response. This happened, this is how I respond, you know? Mm -hmm. And without any real control or agency over it. And I think that's part of, part of uh, you know, this consciousness journey for us. Yeah. 
one thing you say early on in the book, it might even be in one of the reflection pieces at the end of the first chapter is that every memory we have is, is sort of there for a reason. Like we remember what we remember for it's meaningful in some way. And part of the work that you undertook in this book was to look at a lot of your memories. Yeah. So I wonder if maybe you could say a bit about a bit more about why memories matter sort of when you stop running from them, what's, what's, what becomes possible. And then a bit mm -hmm. about what it was like for you to start to look at some of these really early memories, which from my read, your childhood was quite mixed. It was quite, you were pulled in lots of directions. There was moments of idle and moments of intense suffering. And yeah, I, I wonder just how was that for you to start to look at those early memories? Yeah, no, it was. I, I, I mean, that's my own conclusion. I haven't based that on any research or any, you know, expert findings. But I think the moments that stand out in your life, <clears throat> positive and negative, uh, are, are hints to things that really matter to you and things that are unhealed within you. Because that's why that memory is there. Uh, and so on the negative side, right? So... Uh, so for me to make sense of my life, I need to look at what those peak moments were or peak moments or the opposite of peak, you know, whatever the death moments were and, and to see what that meant and whether I have integrated them fully or understood them. Uh, they could be small, but they're stuck in your memory. Um, like the time my father threw a slipper at me across the room or a shoe when we were living in Barbados because he was trying to get my attention because he had an asthmatic attack and he needed the inhaler. And I was on the other side of the room and he couldn't speak. Mm. Mm. And, and I didn't know, I couldn't understand what he wanted. I was just playing around and he's, you know, he threw a shoe at me and hit me on the head. And I already had this difficult relationship with him, distant relationship. You know, I, I didn't know him until I was seven. Mm. And, and, Felt that he disapproved of me, that he saw me as he wasn't proud of me. He saw me as the opposite of him, you know, and everything about me he saw as a weakness. So I already knew that he didn't respect me or like me. And now I said, oh, my God, he hates me. Right. So that became an imprint in my memory uh, because, you know, throwing a shoe at somebody's head is, is a big deal in, in our culture and some cultures. And so I carried that memory and I finally asked him about it. A few years ago, and of course, he had no recollection <laughs> that, uh, as you would expect. So it wasn't a, an important moment for him. But then as I reflected on it, I said, you know, basically what I conclude is that desperate people do desperate things. Right. And he was desperate at that moment, and therefore he did the only thing he knew. So I, I had read meaning to it, you know. And so it, it can bring a kind of peace because at least it can it can uh, remove that charge mm. that it had mm. when I when I affected so yeah i think memories do matter you know i think we are probably unique among all the species you know we have we have this vivid memory that we remember things and that kind of defines us our, our, our identities and our beings and of course we have this imagination uh, so about the future and so i think we have to tap into those qualities of what makes us human and and learn from that what we can mm. Mm. One of the patterns I noticed as I read the sort of journey you've been on from your childhood into your much of your early professional career is that there were a lot of uh, 
what's the right word I want? I mean, there were a lot of men who, through indifference or violence or uh, harshness, really created conditions that were harmful to you and to people around you. And, and I think you used the phrase like the toxic patriarchy. And that really resonated with me. There are so, there your father-in-law is maybe an example of someone who didn't fit that bill, which was a really get, a gift for you to get. But I wonder if you could talk a bit more about there's something for me about this connection that desperate people do desperate things, and that uh, men in positions of power create desperation around them and create sort of pain and suffering around them. And yeah, just how, what do you make of that pattern now as you look back, and how has that shaped you? Yeah, so if I uh, just step back and give my background, you know, so I come from the warrior caste in India. People probably know that India is, has a caste system, right? Yeah. I think it's one of the most difficult things and, and challenging things about Indian culture, what we call a social sadness, you know, this that you're born into these different categories and somehow expected to, you know, play out that identity. Yeah. Uh, in which in the case of the upper classes is a beneficial advantageous to them because if you're a Brahmin and you're supposed to be you know, priestly and educated and you know intellectual and whatnot, we come from the warrior class and you're supposed to be you know this uh, sort of uh, extreme uh, you know masculine domineering mm. kind of energy um, aggressive you know um, and then of course the 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 the, the 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 other castes, which is the traders and the so forth, and then the worst part of it, which is the the so-called untouchable, you know, the the people at the bottom of that, or the poor who are born into these lives, even today to some degree, and certainly in the past, I mean, it was a life sentence. You're going to be, you know, live a life of complete degradation and doing menial work, and nobody wanting to even look at you, right? Forget about touch you and so forth. You know, it's just. Yeah, that was not like a, that was not a metaphor. The phrase "untouchable" it was literal. Like, oh no! If if uh, I... someone from the Brahmin class touched, that they touched, or even their shadow touched, or eye contact was made, there's all these purification rituals, right? Like, yes. yeah, and I brutal. saw it first in our village. You know, I mean, I grew up the first five years in the little village with my grandfather being the overlord of that village. You know, with a title and uh, that was Girwar. Uh, Girwari, grandfather, my father's side. Yeah, and so uh, I saw the way that certainly those, the, the, the so-called untouchables were treated when they came to clean the toilets and all of that and, you know, where they were allowed to be and where they were allowed to, what they were allowed to touch. And even if they needed to drink water, there was a special container that was there for them. Nobody else could use it. All kinds of things like that. But I saw the abuse all around, you know, as I came of of awareness, you know, my grandfather would yell at all the, we'd yell at everybody basically, but especially he would come inside and yell at the women, including my mother and, you know, for no reason, but basically to keep them in their place and, you know, yelling extremely abusive things and calling them whores and all kinds of horrible things. It's just like unimaginable now uh, to me. <clears throat> and, you know, it would be a one-way monologue. You'd just stand there and, and rant to them. It could be like there was not enough salt in the in the dal or whatever, or something. Maybe he'll find some little thing about the food he was served or something, you know, and then he'll just take off from there. Uh, so I saw all of this abuse and the complete absence of love and any tenderness. 
you know so with all of his children he was extremely harsh and uh, demanding and it was all about work and there was no love you know people were expected to work hard but uh, it was all about people using each other and abusing each other and it was about the money and money was used as a weapon because he controlled everything even and uh, as his children became adults you know it was everything went through him right so you never really individuated you know mm. uh, which is mm. why as was you know later years i mean people basically were waiting for him to die you know and this is the tragedy of of those lives that it's just like people can't wait because that's how they get their freedom and that's how they inherit the land and you know they get you know it's like they're held hostage by this 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 person yeah and there's so, something yeah, like about it, to be to be that person i'm just getting in touch with like that, that is just so terribly sad to arrive at a place where you have been seeking power and accumulating power and and using that power and abusing that power and then it's like for what so people can wait for you yeah. to die and and like it just that's really sad yeah. yeah it's very hollow i mean you know his his sons used to steal from him you know they would get into his closet he used to bury his money somewhere you know in a tin box so they couldn't find it and then you know they would dig it out and it already already been eaten up by moths and what not or worms you know yeah. or you would bury it in different places or you know so yeah it was it was a tragic story ultimately i mean he was you know he was he was renowned in many ways because of how hard he worked and what he did so what really happened was that his own father my great grandfather was the opposite he was a very loving and generous man hmm. but he was not hard right? he wasn't hard so he he basically gave anything anytime anybody wanted anything he just gave it to them mm. right mm. you know to the point where people took advantage of him you know he lost a lot of the ancestral lands or they were mortgaged or whatever and so our family was reduced from what it had been you know mm. under my grandfather mm. and he only had one son my grandfather which was unusual in those days and so he went to the other end of the you know spectrum mm. he became extremely hard extremely you know and he got back all the lands and added more and you know he bought russian tractors and he did a lot of stuff which was ahead of his time but it was like you know going from a bipolar going from one pole to the other yeah all love and no you know sort of uh, discipline yeah. in that sense all discipline and no love and and that then created an environment of you know it's kind of trickle down tyranny i call it you know mm-hmm. everybody abuses the person below them on that on the, in that hierarchy and so so yeah the whole system was rife with that and um, but you know on the other hand on my mother's side i had my 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 mother's father was also a similar uh, position in the sense of being a large landowner with a title in the village you know the head or head of that village uh, but he was a much more gentle and refined soul you know and he just he enjoyed his life and he was um he wasn't really given to hard work you know so he was just about living the aristocratic life and you know you know uh so so again i feel like i was given all these models of extreme renditions of different you know mm-hmm. so between my mother's side and my father's side then of course between my own parents right my father was very brilliant 
hardworking, disciplined, structured, had a lot of charisma, you know, personal power, as we call it, right? But he didn't come from love. Mm-hmm. Love was entirely conditional. And it basically, if you did what he wanted you to do, then you were in, otherwise you were out. That I, I experienced that very painfully. My mother was pure love. There's nothing you could do to lose her love, but she did not stand in her power. Mm. She had, in, in a sense, she only had feminine energy, but no no healthy masculine energy, which all, mm. all women are capable of having. My father had masculine energy, which then in the absence of any family, he had no feminine energy, so that becomes the toxic masculine energy, right? The dominating, aggressive, etc. So, you know, so each of them in that sense was like half a person, you know? And I think to me, the lesson is how can we try to combine those two things? How can we cultivate our personal power uh, and all the things that my father had with, but rooted in love? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's possible. I, I know some some people who are like that. It's not It's not common. But I think that's something to aspire to. And I think mm-hmm. that, that intentionality, I think, is where it starts. Mm-hmm. The awareness and the intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm struck. Just one of the gifts that you're modeling through unearthing and excavating your, your history all the way back to, I guess, your great-grandfather is this pattern that you can see of, like, this pole swinging back over to this pole, and then your father, I... I sense really chafed against yeah against the kind of prescribed place he was meant to play in the family. So he he distances and flies away across the world, and he's pulling you with him and all this stuff. And you sort of then you're pulled back to to India, yeah. and you you're just as a young child dealing with these constant different realities. And um, but by excavating all of this, you have an opportunity at least to be conscious of this pattern and say, what can I take from this side and from this side? And how do I embody the best of those rather than just continue this, the next ping pong, wherever it sends me flying? Yeah. 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 yeah, That's definitely, I think, an important learning from here because uh, otherwise we can just be stuck in that pattern, you know? And as I said, in my family, it was victims of victims. Uh, Each father, being, you know, each son being a victim of his father, you know, that's that's gone on for a while. And I was trying to break that pattern and heal the father wound that I had with my father. And, and the, you know, I've, I've worked on that in the last many years to do so. And I think, you know, I recognize at some point that I, I have been perpetuating that further down too, because my son, being a special needs son, you know, I ha- he had his own version of a father wound with me. Mm-hmm. I had never seen him. My father never saw me for who I was. You know, he was looking for something in his own image. So he couldn't see me. And 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 likewise, I think I did that with my son. Being special needs made it a very challenging thing, of course. And and it's at you know, I I kind of got into the mode of seeing him as a responsibility and, and even even to some degree as a burden. Mm that I can't expect all of the positive things you expect, you know, when you have children that, you know, they're going to go out and do amazing things and give you grandchildren and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, he's not able to do any of those things, but so I, and of course he can't earn a living, et cetera. So, yeah. So I had this and he could sense, he could sense that, you know, 
I was disappointed or I didn't really, you know, you were all, are you proud of me? Are you proud of me? And I would be grudging. <clears throat> Even if he did little things, he's looking for that, you know. He wants yeah, to make we're so We're so, I mean, we have to be as, as little humans. We're so attuned to the moods and feelings and textures of these big people around us because they're like, yeah. this is life or death in a way, right? Like, and so it's, we, yeah. it's hard to mask that. And instead, what you're, what I sense you're inviting people to in this book is to face it and go, wow, here, here's that pattern again. How did you work that uh, with yourself and with him? Or, or, or how would you describe where you are in that journey now as a father? With my son, yeah. So I, you know, it, it, um, it was one of the gifts of writing this book, which was that, 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 that it, it, it's kind of hit me like a lightning bolt one day, you know? as I was writing about the father wound, that chapter. And I said, wow. And in my, in our case with me and my father, it was, it was, I was able to take the steps to try and heal that because I had the awareness and the, and the resources in some way. Um, but certainly with my son, he's not going to be able to do that. I mean, it's up to me. Mm -hmm. right? So, so that I've been, you know, with that awareness, I've been working on, on that, uh, and then there's another part of it, which which comes later in the book, which is, uh, you know, when I went to that ayahuasca, uh, ex through that ayahuasca experience in the rainforest in Ecuador, and I got those four words with the acronym LIST, love, innocence, simplicity, and truth, that that's what we need in order to heal the world and heal ourselves. And one day, when my partner pointed out that your son is those four things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, he's walking embodiment of love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. Mm. He's very loving, very affectionate. He's innocent like a small child. He keeps life very simple, and he's incapable of telling a lie. Mm -hmm. Right? And I said, wow, so here's somebody who can teach us, you know, because mm -hmm. most of us forget, or we, we struggle trying to embody those things. And so, yeah, all of those, the combination of those things, so now I see him as a whole person. I see his his brilliance in, in some dimensions, you know, all of us are, you know, there's many, many kinds of intelligence, right? We talked about the eight kinds of intelligence, Gardner, but some some studies say 100 and there's 168 kinds of intelligence. Yeah. You know? yeah. And yeah. everybody is a genius at a few of those and everybody is a complete zero and many of them. Yeah. And then the rest of them were kind of in the middle, you know? So what happens with, with that situation, you know, you kind of only see the, you know, the ways in which he, he struggles, but you actually don't enough see, you know, the things that he really also has as a gift, mm. you know. So starting mm. to see some of these gifts, mm. you know, don't see them if you're not looking for them. And and then also just, you know, trying to experience more joy because he can bring us joy, you know. He, he connects us back to our childhood, you know, because he likes to watch the Disney cartoons with us or watch Simpsons or, you know or, you know, play video games and so forth. So, yeah, so it's it's been, um, that's been one of the one of the great gifts. You know, mm. And it's affecting him as well, right? So um, you can see him blossoming mm. with, with that energy. So. You know, I'm, I'm really receiving this a lot and thinking of my son, who's our, our middle child, who um, I recently, my wife recently shared this phrase with me called the, the deeply feeling child. Mm, and yeah. um, I haven't done enough research to kind of understand the 
the whole landscape of the sort of different ways we might think about children. But like, as soon as I heard that phrase, like, yes, this is a kid who has really big feelings. And there are times when I wish he didn't. (laughs) And then Mm -hmm. when, and I'm going, I'm like doing that kind of projection very, you know, he's only three, but it's like, Oh, you're, you're not being who I need you to be because your big feeling Mm -hmm. is disruptive to me. Right, and and yeah. I'm sure he's already, and I, it makes me so sad, but I'm sure he's already in some way tracking that. But there mm. are there's also parts of me that like can slow me down and go, wait a minute, this could be his superpower if mm-hmm. we can create a safe enough environment where yeah. he can see that his capacity to feel big feelings is not only not bad, but quite mm-hmm. good and quite mm-hmm. helpful for him as a way of relating to others as a way of being with the world and its intensity as a way of sensing things that other people don't sense I mean there's all this potential in there who knows what it will actually be but I just I really feel the work that you're inviting me to as a dad to go how do I stay connected to what this is is as a gift as opposed to just kind of you know, it's hard at two in the morning when he's melting down and I just want to sleep. Like I honor that. It's hard, it's a hard spot to be in, but to not like reduce him to this inconvenience because he has big feelings. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a wonderful realization that you're getting at this age, you know, uh, uh, because <clears throat> I learned recently from Gabor Mate. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, The Wisdom yeah. of Trauma, et cetera. We were in Costa Rica at Blue Spirit, and he was there with Gabor, with uh, Bessel van der Kolk and uh, some other trauma experts. And he said that little boys are more sensitive and more emotional than little girls mm. at a certain age, you know. But then, as they get socialized, you know, by our culture and you know general expectations of what it means to be a boy or girl, you know, they we kind of you know try to get that out of them or wow. we teach them. They should not express or they should suppress those emotions. That's right? to- like that's when we say toxic mask, that's it right there. It's like this is yeah. who you are. You're not allowed to be that. Okay. Right. And so what happens is that you suppress those, you can't express your feelings. You know, emotions and little children do, the, do that well, right? It's, it's energy in motion. You know, they're they're happy, they're sad, they're angry. I mean, they all it flows through them, right? Yes. And then they're fine. In the next minute, then they're back to back to normal. But when you teach them to suppress it, then it goes inside, right? And it doesn't move through them and it gets, you know, and and uh, it gets solidified in some way. And then, then it shows up later in life. You know, and I had this experience recently after the book uh, you know, was done, before the book was published, but I had this experience of chronic pain, uh, of back pain. Mm. And it didn't go away, you know. And literally, I had I don't know how many massages. I was in a healing center in India, and then I was in Costa Rica. And I had massages, and I had uh, you know chiropractors, and I had all kinds mm. of things, mm. uh, uh, even muscle relaxing inje- injections and painkillers. And I mean, it was getting debilitating. And until, until somebody said, "Well, maybe this is emotionally uh, emotional in nature. Are there emotions that you are not expressing or not?" not uh, experiencing and is there is there some unexpressed anger also that you're holding mm-hmm. you know and and then i read this book called healing your healing back pain the mind body connection and he talks about that most chronic pain including back pain is actually psychologically rooted and it is what he calls tms tension myoneural syndrome 
that when you are unwilling to face some kind of an emotional issue, uh, that your body, your mind actually manufactures pain or sends mm -hmm. signals. Mm -hmm. Your body generates pain there because your mind controls all of that, your brain, uh, to distract you from the deeper pain uh, that you're that you need to avoid. Mm -hmm. Right. So the fact that you've got this pain in this part of your body means you can't really be focused on the emotional stuff. Now it sounds far fetched, but this doctor has treated thousands of people and you know suffered decades of pain go away. You know, so just reading that book, 80-90% of people experience their pain, you know, wow. to basically away, you know. And that happened with me after you know, almost two months of really suffering. I read the book and then and now when it recurs or when I get a twinge here and there, I immediately go to what's what's what am I what what's on my mind? Mm. What am I need to journal? Oh, what do I need to? Mm. And so I think that's and and as part of that learning, I've also read and I can send you afterwards and you can share it with your audience as well. An article called "The Dangers of the Good Child." Mm. And you've got the sensitive child, and I was also a sensitive kid, and that's also you know that can lead to these kinds of things as well if you're if you're more sensitive than most people are uh but the good child is the one who is very compliant mm. and does everything they're asked to do and doesn't have tantrums and doesn't fight with their siblings and you know right so everybody said wow what a model kid what a good mm. little kid right mm. but the danger over there with that is that there's an excessive need for compliance for you know they become people pleasers and they want your approval but it's coming from a place of lack and so they're willing to give up their authenticity yeah in favor of attachment mm -hmm. because they're so afraid of losing that attachment right so whether it's being sent away or in my case my father was i didn't know my father until i was seven right and i felt accepted by him and therefore i wanting to be accepted by him or when his approval, etc., uh, or because I grew up in an environment of tremendous amount of conflict all around me uh, in that village, that I just was harmony seeking, you know, to uh, mm. to a fault. Mm. You know? But in the process, you can lose yourself, yeah. and you don't say what's on your mind. You don't you don't allow yourself to feel, and you don't express your anger when it's justified, and so forth. So, so authenticity over attachment. You know, it's something we're going to encourage our kids. They don't always have to be, you know, it's okay for them to, you know. I love that. Authenticity over attachment. And it strikes yeah, me, I don't know if, if this, if you would agree with this interpretation, but as I, as I come back to your book, like, I'm forgetting the professor's name, but there was like a moment where a professor said, like, come, come work with me. And it was like the safe thing to do. But actually it, created like a deep sense of emptiness in you and you're you're sort of like working on this dissertation in marketing that some part of you was aware is like people people hate marketers like I was named one of the top Raj was named one of the top 50 you know marketing influencers and you're like oh like is that a good thing you know so there's some some right. way in which you're saying yes to the safe move that was compliant and was supposedly the right thing to do but some other part of you could feel that that was actually really harming your authenticity yeah, so this was a real uh, moment of truth in my PhD program, because when you finish all your courses and your comprehensive exam, then you have to find a dissertation topic, right? And I was 
starting to think about what what do I care about? What what would mean something to me? But then this the senior most professor in our department came to me with with a proposal to say, you know, I've been on the board of this company and they've got all this data and financial services and and they're just doing basic statistical analysis on that. And I think there's a dissertation in this data, you know. And we are so anxious at that stage of your, you know, PhD education because you know there's a very high percentage of PhD students who never finish their dissertation. It's called a- ABD Albert dissertation. Ah. Okay, <laughs> and I think I forget the numbers. It's like 50, 60 percent of PhD students never get the dissertation done. You know, wow. and so there's always that fear. So the fact that this senior professor was asking me to do this, I automatically said yes, even though. We didn't even know what we were researching and what the problem was and did I care about this and is it does it matter in the world? All my idealism and my my sense of wanting to do good in the world and make a difference and all of that got thrown out of the window just because of you know what seemed like you know and all my the other students were envious of me. Oh my God, you're getting handed a dissertation yeah. topic and yeah. you get to work on Farley and you know all of that. But it was such a uh, you know. So be careful, you know. Yeah, life what's the phrase? It's kind of like a golden cage or something like that, right? Like it's like yeah. everyone says, like that's the thing you want, and then you're trapped by it. Yeah, and you know, it turned into a nightmare because you know, the, I mean, it's the data they the data already existed, right? Normally, you think of a problem or an issue that you want to address, and then you collect data to figure out, you know, what to, how to do it, or what to do about it. In this case, the data already existed, so I had to kind of figure out a question that this this set of data could answer. You know, it was it became a nightmare. It took me years and you know I just it, it kind of derailed me for years. So it's just a bit of a lesson. Yeah. Uh, but the, the 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 sort of how did you say the book? It's like it's like following your heartbreak, your heartbreak started that bitter lesson then sort of said, okay, what is it I really know about marketing? And there's this, this to me sounds like this, the seed got planted for you that ultimately became conscious capitalism, firms of endearment, like we're spending like the, the equivalent of India's GDP on sending people junk mail. So they buy shit and that that's, that's wrong, right? Like there's some, at some point you started to say, I'm not going to keep perpetuating the system. I need to look at it more closely. Right. So for many years I was stuck in the system. And I was doing the things, you know, to publish, you have to publish in order to get promoted or to get tenure, which is a big prize, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and most people end up just doing things that don't really matter to anybody, you know, not even to them, you know, it's just, you know, how do I get into the journals? And so, so I was kind of stuck in that paradigm for, for a while, but I wasn't happy. I wasn't proud of my, my work. Uh, my inner dialogue was my father got a PhD in agriculture science. He wanted to cure world hunger. And I got a PhD in marketing. I'm just want to sell you more junk, you know. Mm. That's what mm. most people, you know, most of mm. marketing is, right? So I had the sense of shame about it, mm. and uh, which ultimately led me to ask the question: Is there a better way? And I think that's a very important question for all of us to ask about anything, because the answer is always yes. And. And that did ultimately then lead to a book called Firms of Endearment, um, which actually started as the shame of marketing. That mm. book was called 
of marketing and then it was called marketing malpractices and it was called it went through about 12 iterations before it became a book you know and, and publishers kept rejecting it but something in me said this matters and i really need to pursue this mm-hmm. and finally, mm-hmm. it was a life-changing book for me and for many others and it led to the founding of the conscious capitalism movement yeah because we discovered a different way of being yeah uh, being in business which was rooted in love and service and not in greed and selfishness and, and and using people and showing that those businesses are even more successful financially in the long run, right? And the realization many years later, coming back to 2018 when I turned 60, when I worked with a coach, you know, so I did a whole bunch of things that year, right? I went to the Himalayas where I had my 60th birthday and the Buddhist tradition uh, up there and then silent retreat and then the ayahuasca experience in the rainforest with the Pachamama Alliance in Ecuador and working with a coach for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I told her the story of my life and my where I come from, my relationship with my father and how my work you know, had been and then what became uh, and the founding of conscious capitalism, etc. And she listened to all of that and then she said, do you realize that you spent 45 years trying to impress your father? <laughs> following the traditional path and, you know, trying to get promoted and, you know, money and success and whatever, how he defined success. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then you've now spent the last 15 years honoring your mother with your work. Mm. And you've done starting with Forms of Endearment and then Conscious Capitalism and all the other books, the Shakti Leadership and Everybody Matters and Healing. And that that is all bringing your mother's energy into this world where it is missing. Nice. Mother energy in general is missing from the world of work mm. and even the politics, right? It's all, mm. you know, it's all the winning, dominating, aggressive, you know, accumulating, hyper-competitive, that drive, that's what drives most decision-making in the world. Where's the love and compassion and empathy and connection and inclusion and all of that, you know, the healthy mother energy. And that's what's missing. And that's because I was, and I am more like my mother than I was like my father. And she raised me as a single mom for the first seven years, um, kind of nurture and nature. I, I had those those qualities in me. But of course, my father saw them all as weaknesses. So I spent 45 years trying to, trying to rid myself oh, of my trusting nature, of my idealism, of my sensitiveness, you know, of my, uh, you know, all of that, right? Uh, until finally realizing that actually that is my gift. That is what I'm meant to bring mm. in arena into the world right and and so yeah that was a real turning point because when she said that it's kind of crystallized wow you're right without knowing it that's what this has been about mm-hmm. and then of course she said does your mother know that and <laughs> and I said well, I didn't know it how would she know that and she insisted that I call my mother and fortunately I did and it turned out to be the most beautiful and healing loving conversation I ever uh-huh. had with her uh-huh. because she had, she had no idea Mm-hmm. that she had this kind of impact. And she couldn't read my book. She didn't read English, right? So she didn't know that these books were really a reflection of her energy, yeah. right? She was very self-effacing. She just said, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. And I said, no, you're everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she died a year later, you know? So she would have died thinking that her life had been meaningless and that she left not, no trace behind, you know? Mm-hmm. And in fact, the opposite is the case, you know, and 
And that's the other thing, you know, when my parents died within four months of each other, the contrast was so stark. You know, my father died and you know, it was a solemn affair and a big deal, you know, the passing of the patriarch, but there was no tears. You know, my mother was the only person who cried. Even I didn't cry. I mean, you think, you know, um, and four months later, when my mother died, nobody could stop crying, including all the men. And so it just tells you something about your life and what's going to happen at the end. Mm. Do people feel a kind of grief, uh, a relief, or do they feel grief? Mm. And there's a kind of relief. When my grandfather died, that was definitely the case. A kind of relief, you know, people were waiting for him to die. With my father also, there was some of that, you know. Yeah, because you have a hard, difficult presence, you know, and that's a tragic thing at the end of a long human life. So tragic. What was your mom's name again? I'm I'm blanking. Usha, Usha, which means the light. The light. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad. Thank you for sharing that. And what a gift that you got to share that with her before she died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had that I'm, I'm, you're just really putting me in touch. I, I think this is strong in me for lots of reasons. You know, the pattern in your book and the way you're talking about your grandfather and your father and the way I'm relating to my son. And But I just am really, I really feel a sense of sadness, but also hope. The sadness for how many men are, as Gabor sort of described, cut off and and placed into a path that will lead them to a place where people are relieved when they're gone because mm-hmm. like your father didn't ask for that your grandfather didn't ask for that they didn't ask to be born in the caste they were born into like there's all of these contexts that are so harmful that mm-hmm. then perpetuate this harm and this desperation and yeah it just is yeah. really fucking sad <laughs> like i'm in touch with that now and, yeah. and i love that some someone like you can go can start to say, yeah, actually, as a man, part of my work is to bring in my mom, as as well as yes, has been tr- me trying to please my dad, brought me to things that are meaningful. I can see that too, and that it's a, that there's the holding of the both is sort of feels really important. Yeah, yeah, I think that is, and certainly the patriarchy is is a big feature of the Indian culture. It is here as well, I think. Um, and it's not like the patriarchy is kind to the men, you know. It's it so is brutal to the men, yeah. Brutal to the men too, yeah. and to the women, of course, you know. Yes. And, yes. and what what we need is not a matriarchy, but we need an integration, you know, a humanarchy, right? Mm. Together, and and honoring the sacred feminine, yeah, which is which is so missing. Which is why the ayahuasca experience, the rainforest, connecting to Mother Earth. You know, the ultimate mother energy, and then honoring that, that was an important part of this journey for me as well. You know? mm. In a way, I feel like we're we're arriving into something you said earlier in the conversation, which is around those rare people who are in their power, right? <laughs> and in a way, you helped your your mom see how much power she had had without being in it and aware of it. So what a gift to give her. And, I, and you know, we only have a few more minutes, but I wonder 
your whole book in a way I, I'm receiving it as an invitation for people to come into their power through excavating their past, through healing wounds that maybe they've been running from for a long time. And yeah. Yeah. What do you sense if we had a humanarchy, if more people were standing in their power than, than are today, what are you in touch with? What's important to you about that? What possibilities are kind of waiting for us if we can move that, that way? Yeah, I think, I mean, if you look around, <clears throat> you know, most people lack moral clarity. They lack moral courage. You know, they go along. They, they cannot withstand a uh, charismatic figure who gets them to do terrible things. You know, they don't have a sense of self. You saw that in Hitler with Germany, and you're seeing that now in the U.S. You have seen it in the last five years, I believe. Yeah. It has been revealed to be a country where a majority, or not majority, but a very large number of people don't have that sense and are not able to resist. You know, this goes back to the Milgram experiments at Yale. You know, when Stanley Milgram yeah. asked the question, what makes normal, decent people do terrible things to each other? Right? Because they don't have that core. Right? You can get them, you just give them some orders and then take away the sense of responsibility and say, you're not to blame. You know, Just follow mm. the orders mm. and they'll do it. Mm. And so I think creating that sense of personal agency, uh, of moral courage, moral, moral responsibility that we have, um, you know, we have a duty to think about things in a deeper way and to have the courage to stand up for what is right. There are a lot of people who are just going along to get along. You know, they're just, you know, sacrificing all of their values and everything that they've talked about simply to be in power or to get to acquire power and so forth. So I think this this whole question of power, mm. Mm. which is, is you know, power is essential to get anything done in the world. Uh, but most power out there is unhealthy. It's power over and not power with. Uh, it's it's positional power and not personal power. Mm. Right? So personal power comes from within you. Nobody can take it away. And that's what we can cultivate. Right? Positional power is what you get by virtue of a title or being elected or whatever. And then once that's gone, you're nothing. Uh, how do we cultivate that personal power? And how do we use that power with people and not over people so that we can bring about the healing that we need in the world? I mean, the need for healing is so great, even more than when I wrote the healing organization, right? After that, we've had a pandemic. After that, we've had wars that we came out of nowhere. Um, the suffering is immense. The, the escalation of anxiety, depression, drug addiction, suicides, and the level of suicidal ideation in young people is at a level that people have never imagined, let alone seen. You know, I think something like 20, 25% of people in their 20s seriously considered suicide in the month of June of 2021. I saw some data along those lines, you know. It was, you know, the, the, the psychological and Planetary suffering is extraordinary out there. And so I think we need to... And why is that happening? Because, yeah, we are, we are in need of some of the things that I talk about here, right? The need of purpose, but it's not, it doesn't end with purpose. For me, I had my purpose, but I still I was unhappy. 
right? I didn't have that inner peace. How do we cultivate that? And how do we, and, and that all ultimately comes down to healing because we have these wounds and traumas that are unacknowledged. And all of us carry personal trauma, family trauma, ancestral trauma, and this collective trauma. And we don't acknowledge it. So what we do is we conceal it and then we numb it with drugs and alcohol and other escape mechanisms. But then we continually relive it. And what I'm calling on for people is to reveal it and feel it in order to heal it. Right? To reveal it to yourself first, because sometimes we're not aware. I had suppressed memories that I didn't know about. Well, you know, what's called disassociative amnesia, some of my worst traumas. Mm. Actually, I have placed some of that memory. And so you got to reveal it and feel it in order to ultimately heal it. And then when we can do that, then we can experience what's called post-traumatic growth, where we become stronger for having had a trauma and healed it than if we never had that trauma in the first place. Mm. And I think I refer to the Japanese art of kintsugi, when a piece of pottery breaks, you put it back together using gold dust and glue. So now it's a work of art and it is stronger than the original piece of pottery because that piece broke in the, along its fault lines and now you have strengthened those fault lines. Mm -hmm. We can become that wounded healer, right? Because all of us are wounded. We can either be a wounded person walking around desperate or we can doing our desperate healing. things. Yeah, right. or... Yeah. Or we can heal our wounds and they become our precious scars, right? But now we become a source of healing for others because we had that experience and we were able to heal from it. So for me, it's about being that the wounded healer and then the peaceful warrior. You know, I rejected my warrior caste identity because I was so unwarrior-like, right? I was a peace-loving, harmony-seeking to a fault. A kid, I never had a single fight, you know, with, with my siblings in my life, uh, etc. But you know, any anything good can be taken too far, and the idea of a warrior, you know, is important because it's not about oppressing people; it's about being a peaceful warrior, a warrior on behalf of of truth and love. And you have to sometimes fight for that, right? You have to stand up. Right? So, so for me, coming to terms with that. Not rejecting the warrior identity, but but using it in a way that 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 is loving and serving, mm -hmm. right? And trying to bring that to my family of origin in India because they all are very proud of being this warrior class, but they use basically use their privilege to oppress other people and take advantage of other people. I said, no, you're if you believe in this, you're born into this. You're born into this to serve and protect. Mm -hmm. You're not here to oppress and use people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's, we call it the dharma, right? This is the dharma of the Rajputs, where we come from. Our dharma is to actually be willing to sacrifice ourselves, mm. right? So mm. that others, others mm. can live. That's probably what, what our ancestors did, right? They gave up their lives so that other people could live. So, so yeah, there's a lot of those, those lessons, I think, that for me, that come, you know, directly to me from that experience. And I think some of them are are generalizable, you know. Some are some some are universal lessons. Gorgeous. I feel like if we had another hour, then I would spend time like really what is unpacking the qualities of the wounded healer and the peaceful warrior. But thank you for that invocation of of identity, that call to like, okay, if this is who I am, what does it really mean to be who I am in this moment of pain? Um, Raj, it's been a gift to be back with you again. 
Um, we'll share links to all your stuff in the show notes, but is there anything else that you want to say by way of, of closure before we wrap up today? I know I, I, I appreciate being back with you, Andy. Uh, you're very thoughtful and I hope this is helpful to you personally as well. It has been, that, yeah. uh, with your children and, and, you know, they will be the beneficiaries as will you from some of these realizations, you know, I think, we can always look back and we, I mean, you can, you can have guilt and shame about things that happened in the past, but I think there's always the possibility of redemption from this point forward. You know, once we have the awareness, you know, as my, my Angelou said, you do the best with what you know. And when you know better, you do better. Mm -hmm. I think we're all trying, we're all trying to live into that. And so, uh, so yeah, I encourage your listeners to do the same, examine your own life and definitely look at where you need healing. Mm -hmm. And, the good news is there's many modalities available for healing today, even for healing trauma. It used to be most people did not weren't able to heal their trauma, but I think now we can. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you, Raj. And thanks to everyone who's listening. May, may you receive this invitation. May it be so. Okay. Thank Take you. Care. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing and engineering services from Jim Serqua at Sump Pump Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others. Consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.